it worked last night. So, uh, all right, well, let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us your word, that, that we might know you, um, that we might know what's true about you and what you say is true about us and how we are to respond to you. And Lord, as we begin studying this book, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that you've written for our instruction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Um, I'm John. Most of you know me if you don't know me. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, and we are going to be studying the book of Micah over the next nine nine weeks or so. Uh, I have the schedule. You may have gotten this in an email, potentially. This is the updated schedule uh, that says the first two weeks of this study were canceled, so now it's got the the actual uh, dates on there. We were supposed to have three weeks on, one week off. Uh, now, um, for uh, us on Wednesday mornings, it's going to be five weeks on, one week off, four weeks on, and that'll be the end of the study. So you only get one off week, so courtesy of the weather. Uh, but after next week, so we're meeting next week, so if you have the original schedule, it says we're off next week. That's not true for you. You're here next week. Uh, and then after that, we should be back on the same schedule with the Tuesday night study, which really doesn't make that much of a difference for you, but it makes a big difference for me. So I'm not doing two different lessons back to back. So it's more of convenience for me. Uh, so before we just kind of give you an overview of where we're going today, I want to talk a little bit about just the nature of, of what we're doing here. A lot of you were in the study uh, in the fall when we did Second Timothy, but some of you weren't. So we're going to talk about kind of what we're doing, what the format's going to be, why we're doing it this way. I want to talk about studying uh, the prophets in general. So Micah is, is, a, is a book of the prophets in the Old Testament. So we're going to talk about how that is maybe a little bit different and a little bit more challenging than, than studying some other books of the Bible. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the background of Micah itself. So before we study a book of the Bible, we want to uh, try to understand what what's the context, the historical context, and what's going on uh, that is leading Micah to write this book uh, and to to prophesy in this way. And and uh, as we gain more understanding of the historical context, as we then read through the book, things are gonna are gonna make a little bit more sense. Hopefully, make a little bit more sense as we as we go. Why he would be saying certain things and uh, things like that. So we're gonna talk about that. And uh, with that, we're going to do uh, Micah 1, verse 1. That's the only part we're going to do today, because we're doing all background. Micah 1, 1 really describes things that we need to know about the book before we can jump into it. And that's going to take plenty of our, of our time today. Uh, and then next week, we'll jump into the rest of chapter 1. Uh, and uh, if you want to cheat, I posted the audio from last night's lesson that I'm going to do for you next week. So you can listen to that and then see how close I come next week when I teach to saying the same thing. Uh, so the uh, study uh, format, we do about 40 minutes. Uh, that little squiggly line means about, uh, if, I can, if I can do two or three of those squiggly lines to be like really maybe about, I would do that 40 minutes-ish with a generous-ish. Uh, 
here and then uh, whatever time is left, discussion time in, in groups, which when we're done, uh, Cheryl or Janet or somebody will uh, help you figure out which group you're gonna be in if you don't know already. Although, do you guys, have you communicated that? No, okay. So we'll deal with that when I'm done. Um, so you don't need to do any homework uh, per se. I don't have a study guide for you. Uh, what I would say is going to be very beneficial for you is for you to read the text that we're going to be studying uh, more than once in different translations if you can. Uh, that's going to be helpful for you so that the, when you're coming in and we're studying a, a passage, it's not the first time you're reading it or hearing it. Um, on the uh, schedule, I have some recommended resources, uh, different uh, commentaries that you can use. Um, you don't need any of those. Those are more of just if you want to read along with those as we go, those could be helpful for you. They're not required. Um, I may reference them sometimes. I may reference commentaries that are not on there sometimes. Uh, I may reference them and not tell you that I'm referencing them. That's probably way more likely. Uh, so uh, you don't need them, but they could be helpful, especially if you want to, to spend more time in the text than we are just in this, you know, 40-ish minutes or so, if you want to make it a part of your, you know, your regular Bible reading. And so, um, you know, for next week, you want to spend the next week in uh, uh, Micah 1, 2 through 16, working through it piece by piece uh, and coming in, uh, having already looked at it a lot, then having a commentary like that could be helpful. But you don't need, uh, you don't need it. Uh, we're going to start promptly. Let's see, it's 9.45. So we're going to, what time is we, are we supposed to start? 9.30. 9.30? Okay. But next week, you're going to do announcements? Maybe? Try to be here at 9.30 if you can. Uh, we'll start promptly uh, somewhere around 9.30, 9.45. And we do need to park downstairs there. The front doors here are not open. That's for security. That's not my decision. I don't make the rules, I just enforce them. Uh, and so you do need to come in uh, downstairs, park in back, and uh, then we won't have any problems with that. Uh, to maximize our time, I'm generally not going to take questions. So we did this in the fall, and, uh, and there really are two reasons I'm not going to take questions as I'm teaching. Uh, the first reason is just time. Uh, the more time we, we take questions, and really, because if you ask me a question, I don't want to just give you a pet answer. I want to engage on it. And so that can end up taking quite a, quite a long time, and then we won't get through what we need to get through. So um, you're going to have plenty of time to interact in your discussion group. So that's, that's a great place to ask questions if you have questions. Um, I am not opposed to answering questions, just email them to me if you have them. But before you do that, it's funny, I was thinking about this this morning because I, I was reading in, in the Gospel of Luke and um, when, uh, right before the parable of the, of the Good Samaritan, one of the, the lawyers asks Jesus a question. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus's response is not just to tell him, here's what you do. Jesus says, 
What's written in the law? How does it read to you? I was just thinking about that beforehand and thinking, it's interesting that here, here Jesus, who, who's the only person who really could speak with authority and say, this is exactly what God wants. I know because I'm him. Says, well, tell me what the Bible says. So I'm not Jesus. And so it, uh, it ought to behoove me to, to say, if you have a question for my first response to be, well, what's written in the Bible? So, um, and that might be, if you email me a question, my response may be, well, tell me what you've read. Tell me what you understand from Scripture. So that then I'm not the Bible answer man. I want to help facilitate you being able to study the Bible for yourself. So, if you email me a question or you ask me a question and I... Uh, am evasive in my answer. It's not personal. It's me wanting to help you be able to study the Bible. Right? So, uh, yeah, I think that's everything I wanted to say about that. Uh, um, one more thing. I mean, we have these discussion groups. Um, I think there's a reason we, we have discussion groups as a part of this study rather than just having you come and listen to me talk, which I know is you all love to do anyway. Um, but we have the discussion groups because uh, the way that God has designed the church to work is that Christians will not just sit in rows and listen to one person who's being paid to do it. The Christians are supposed to learn from one another as they gather around the word of God. They're supposed to instruct one another and love one another and care for one another and admonish one another and exhort one another. And so... We want to give you guys the opportunity to do that with one another rather than having you all sit facing forward listening to me and then go home and not talk to anybody else about it. We want you to, to take what we're, what we're learning as we study the Bible and, and talk about it with one another more than just coming to an understanding of what the text says. So that's essential, but also working it into our lives. How does, how does what the Bible's teaching intersect with what's actually going on in your life? How does the truth of God meet you where you are and transform you? So that's the kind of things that we want to be addressing in, in our discussion group. So, and I have uh, discussion questions. Maybe you picked them up on the way in. If not, we'll get them to you uh, afterwards that'll, that can uh, structure your discussion time. You're not limited to those, but those are good starting points uh, just as I've tried to think through what might be what might make for some good conversation to help you uh, take this truth and actually uh, put it into practice in your lives. Uh, so now we're going to start talking about studying the prophets. So the prophets are. Uh, it's a group of books in the Old Testament, Isaiah to Malachi, so the end of the Old Testament. And it's, it's a different genre of literature than a lot of other things in the Bible, right? So the Bible's like a, a library, 66 books, different kinds of books. So you have letters, like we studied 2 Timothy in the fall. That's a letter. You've got historical narratives, 
you've got uh, law codes, you've got poetry and uh, what we call wisdom literature. That's a little bit different. You have prophecy. Um, and like anything else, we need to come to a, uh, an understanding of what, is, what kind of literature is this? How, how are we supposed to read this? We do this every day with all the kinds of stuff that we read. So the way that you read um, a, uh, a newspaper editorial is different than you uh, read a weather report. It's different than the way you read a novel. And so we, we kind of intuitively do this. We don't think about it quite as much when we read the Bible because it's all bound together in the, in the same book and it all looks the same. And, and so, but, but the prophets are different kinds of books. They're equally true, authoritative, inspired, inerrant, and everything, but we have to read them a little bit differently. And so we have to think, what, what, are, what are some of these specific challenges of, of reading a book of the prophets? Because we don't really have something that's quite quite the same as the, this genre of prophecy, right? We have historical narratives. You can, you can buy a book of history and, and read that. We have biographies, we have letters, things like that. We have laws. We don't have something quite like prophecy. Prophecy is a little bit different. So we need to think through some of that thing. So I'll start with this. Well, what's a prophet? In the Bible, a prophet is one who speaks for God. It's not just one who tells the future. It's one who speaks God's word. But it's, it's a little bit more than that because in Israel, the prophets were what we might call covenant prosecutors or covenant lawyers. Uh, and just so you know, I'm going to post this whole PowerPoint so you don't need to furiously try to write everything. You can if you want, you want the exercise for your wrist. Um, I'll post it online on the website. I, I can, uh, we can get it printed. So uh, the prophets were, were covenant prosecutors. So Israel as a nation was in covenant with God, right? God redeemed them out of Egypt in the Exodus. And at Mount Sinai, he made a covenant with them. It's the, 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 uh, the kind of laws that you read in, in uh, Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy are all the, the law, the Torah. This is the agreement that God made with Israel. He said, I am going to be your God. You are going to be my people. I've chosen you, not because of anything that's special about you. I've chosen you because of my grace. I just chose you to be my people. And as my people, this is how you have to live. This is what it means to be obedient to me. And if you obey, there's blessings. And if you disobey, there's curses. And so the prophets uh, are the, the prosecutors for the covenant who, who, when Israel is disobedient to the covenant, and that happens quite a bit in the Old Testament, God raises up prophets to, to challenge Israel, not just to tell the future of what's going to happen, but to, to say, remember what God did for you. Remember the, the stipulations of the covenant that God made with you. This is the, these are the vows that you made to God. 
And if you, if you obey him, there'll be blessing. If you disobey, there will be cursing. You're calling them, rebuking them for their sin, for their disobedience, for their unfaithfulness to God. So that leads into what we're, the, that next question. What's prophecy? So we think about prophecy. I think a lot of people think primarily foretelling. Um, that if you call somebody a prophet, uh, oftentimes what you mean is, well, that person was able to tell the future. Right? Sometimes when I'm when I'm watching, you know, TV and I'll, so I'm watching a football game, and uh, I say something, and then five seconds later, the announcer says the same thing. I'm like, I'm a prophet, right? So that's oftentimes what, we're, what we think of in prophecy. That's not the only thing that prophecy is. And this is really important for studying the prophets. Because if we think that prophecy is only about telling the future, then we're actually going to miss a huge part of what prophecy actually is. So it is foretelling. It does include that. It does describe what God is going to do in the future. But in the prophets, very often it's the immediate future. It's the future for the people that the prophet is talking to then. So it's, it is predicting the future to his original audience, but for us, that's in the past. Now, that being said, there definitely are sections of prophecy that talk about the distant future. Um, and, and sometimes that's even the distant future for us. Right? So you get to the end of the book of Isaiah, and it talks about a new heavens and a new earth. And, I, and Isaiah has seen uh, what, what God is going to do to recreate this entire creation uh, at the end of time. Well, that's still future. That's still, it was future to his audience. That's future to us. But there are other things where uh, you'll see uh, as we get into to Michael 1. Uh, Micah says, at the very end of Michael 1, he says... Um, Basically, you need to lament and mourn because your children are going to go into exile. Well, that happened. That happened to their children. So it was future for them, but it's now past for us. So he was speaking very specifically to that group of people. Now, we can learn things from that, but we shouldn't be expecting that well, what he's saying is that our children are going to go into exile. That's not... It would be a misapplication of the text. So we need to think that it is foretelling, but often it's the immediate future. It's not the, the far-off future. Now, we can talk about when we get, because there are places in Micah where the future is farther off, and we'll talk about that. But prophecy is also forth-telling, right? proclaiming and applying God's word in the present, to his present audience. So he's not only talking about this is what's going to happen. He comes to them and he says, this is what should be happening. This is what's not happening. This is what you should have done. This is what God did for you and how you should have responded. And you're not doing that. And you need to stop. You need to come back to God. So in that way, they're, they're exhorting the people in the present to be faithful to God. So it's both. It's both foretelling and foretelling. And that's important so that we, uh, we don't try to make uh, what Micah is saying uh, something that he's not saying. We can get into some, 
some kind of weird theology if we do that. Um, just as an aside, and, and you may talk about this in your groups, one of the reasons I think that people really like to talk about prophecy is because they think about it mostly in terms of foretelling, and they like to think, well, this is what's going to happen in the future, and let's figure out all the details with that, and they, they ignore the foretelling piece of prophecy because then they don't actually have to deal with what the Word of God is saying about their sin. It's easy to talk about what's going to happen in the future. It's harder to talk about what is this saying about my relationship and faithfulness to God right now. Prophecy also uh, is written in, in Israel, in, uh, in uh, Israelite prophecy. It's written in these, what you might call, major and minor keys. You know, music. Major keys are more bright uh, and, and happy. Minor keys are kind of dark and glum, right? And uh, so if you think about it, there are sections of prophecy that are in a major key. They're, they're the promises of salvation, of God's redeeming of his people, what he's going to do to, to bring about his purposes through his people. And then there's minor keys, which are the, the warnings of judgment. That because of the unfaithfulness of the people, God is going to bring judgment, just like he promised he would. And so, as we study the book, we'll find that, that we kind of bounce back and forth between the major keys and the minor keys. And so, and when we get to the end of um, this lesson, you'll see I have a, a kind of a big picture overview of Micah, and you'll see kind of how that works. Now, the prophets come with some particular challenges, especially for us as people who are reading them in English in the 21st century in America. The first challenge uh, is, is a literary challenge. So, so um, certainly the, they're written in Hebrew. Um, most of us, I think, probably don't know how to read Hebrew. So we're reading them in English, but, but it's not just Hebrew, it's Hebrew poetry. Large portions of all the prophetic literature and almost the entirety of the book of Micah is poetry. Now Hebrew poetry is different than much English poetry. A lot of English poetry is based on, on rhyme and rhythm, right? So think about a lot of songs that we sing, most of them have rhymes in them. Uh, think about, there's quite a bit of poetry that has rhyme where it works on, on rhythm or meter. It's not this, quite the same in Hebrew. Hebrew works on what's called parallelism. And so it's sets of lines, two lines or three lines. We call them couplets or triplets or if you want to get super technical, bicola or tricola. Uh, so two or three lines where there's a statement made on the first line and then the second or third or the second and third line uh, modifies that first line in some way that's parallel to it. So it either repeats it or reinforces it or it's a contrast to it or it develops it in some way. And so it, that's why reading these sections of poetry can seem like it's very repetitive. It's like you just keep saying the same thing 
over and over again. Well, that's the way that Hebrew poetry works. It reinforces the, the first line some way. So here's an example from the beginning of Micah 2. Uh, that verse, uh, Micah 2, 1, has two couplets. So uh, as we break down these verses, sometimes you'll hear me refer to the A line, the B line, the C line, the D line. In your Bible, uh, the Hebrew poetry is usually broken down. Uh, it, there's a lot of white space on the right side of your page. It's because uh, they, they put every line of the, of the poem on a different line. So for Micah 2.1, that first line we call the A line, the second line we call the B line, and so forth. So Micah 2.1, these first two lines are, are in parallel. So he says, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds. And so uh, the, the ideas of scheming iniquity and working out evil on their beds are, are parallel. It's a restatement of the same thing. You're kind of supposed to, uh, this first part of the, the A-line, woe to those, is assumed in the second line. So it's woe to those who scheme iniquity what are those who work out evil on their beds? So that's what we'd say as a, as a repetition. Then the C and the D lines is a little bit different. It says when morning comes, they do it. It's they do the, the evil that they've planned. And the D line is, for it is in the power of their hands. So it's not, it's not a repetition. The, the second line is actually explaining why the first line happens. So, it's not an exact science, and you wouldn't expect it to be with poetry. That's kind of the point. That's just, it's something that, that we have to be very aware of as we're reading uh, the prophets, that this is, this is something that, that characterizes the way they write. And it feels very foreign to us, because it's not the way that we're used to reading things. I don't even like to read poetry in English. Reading poetry in Hebrew is a lot harder. So it takes some, takes some time for us to begin to, to get familiar with it. The more you read it, the more familiar you will become with it. So there's the fact that it's written in poetry. That's a challenge. But there's also word plays. Um, they make sense in Hebrew. But they don't translate real well in Egypt. Uh, in Egypt. In, in Hebrew. think of why I would say Egypt. I haven't, yeah, I don't know. I was thinking about the movie The Prince of Egypt this morning. Have you guys seen The Prince of Egypt? I don't know why I was thinking about this. This must be why. I have about 15 things going on in my brain at once. So I'm surprised that doesn't happen more often, actually. So wordplace makes sense in Hebrew. They don't make uh, sense in, in English well, um, at least not all the time. Often the, the Bible you have will have a footnote if there's some kind of wordplay. Uh, we'll try to indicate that that's, that that's the case. Um, so in, in my Bible, uh, in Micah, I think, this is, I think this is the case. In the chapter 1, and we'll talk about this next week. Chapter 1, the end of chapter 1 has a lot of wordplays, a lot of puns. 
uh, in Hebrew. Uh, so in uh, Micah 1, uh, 10, Micah says, At Bethlehafra, roll yourself in the dust. You're like, what the heck does that mean? Well, Bethlehafra is Hebrew for house of dust. So it says, At house of dust, roll yourself in the dust. So if you're reading it in Hebrew, you're like, it, it, it's like a pun. And so he's making, he's making a point with it. Now, for us, it's a, it's a, it really is a place name. We're reading it, it's like, why is he choosing this place? Why is he doing, so we're gonna talk about that more. But this is a, this is a, you can kind of see it because oftentimes the Bible will footnote it, but it doesn't always make sense. And so you gotta be aware that sometimes is what's, what's going on. Another one, just, um, this one's free because that has nothing to do with what we're studying. In Genesis, it talks about how, how God formed the man from, from the dust of the, of the earth. Right? from the dust of the ground. And uh, the word uh, for, for ground, uh, like in, uh, or, or, so earth, like soil in Hebrew is Adama. So he, he, he formed the man, Adam, Adam, out of the Adama. Now, we read that in English, it doesn't make sense, but that's why Adam is, Adam because he was it's basically like saying uh, and then God made mud man it's effectively what it what it means so the other thing that's hard is the, the poetry oftentimes uh, as we're reading it bounces without warning between talking about the past the present the future and you know, while your Bible may have these fun subheadings uh, in, uh, in bold letters above sections of the, of the text that are trying to help you understand, th those are not always especially helpful or, or accurate. And uh, so we have to pay attention to when, uh, as we're reading, are there any markers that help us think through, wait, so is he talking about something that happened in the past now? Or is he talking about what's going on now? Or is he talking about the future? And there are things that we can do to, to, to see that, but that's just a, a warning that it's not, it doesn't read like an unbroken historical narrative. That's not the kind of literature that it is. And so we just need to be aware of that, that things are not always going to be appearing to us in chronological order. So it's, it's poetry. It's not supposed to be read that way. So there's literary challenges. Then there's historical challenges. This is not unique to the prophets. But it definitely is true. Like other books of the Bible, the prophets spoke and wrote to specific people at specific times in specific places for specific reasons. Right? So there is a historical context in which a person named Micah actually lived and actually spoke and actually wrote. But he doesn't include a really robust introduction so that we know exactly what's going on. And so there's... There's places that we're not familiar with. There's things going on that we're not familiar with. And uh, so we're not always going to know all of the details. That can be challenging. Now, we will learn uh, as, as we go that we know the time 
when he, he was prophesying, the time when he, was, when he had his ministry, uh, we know some kind of big picture things about what was going on then. So, and then we can draw some inferences from, from things that he teaches in his book. <coughs> Excuse me. But what's going on then? So we're not going to have uh, the, all of the details, but we're going to have enough detail to try to piece together. Well, what is it that he's talking about here? What's going on that's leading him to, to say this? But it can feel very foreign because we tend to be less familiar with this part of biblical history. One of the reasons why, if, if you uh, had uh, looked at the syllabus that I said, if you want to do some reading before we do the study, read some of 2 Kings. Because that section of 2 Kings, chapters 15 to 17, describe the time period when Micah was prophesying. So it's historical challenges, and there's theological challenges. Because the, the prophets specifically were, were dealing with the covenant that God made with Israel and enforcing it, uh, a lot of the things that they say are based on what the covenant says, are based on what the law says. So the books of, of Exodus, uh, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, especially Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy actually just means second law. It's the second statement of the law. And so if we're not familiar with some of the things that those books, especially Deuteronomy, says, then there's going to be things in Micah that we miss. So I also want to be thinking, if you want to use a, a, a Bible study tool like cross-referencing, where you're thinking if you have a reference Bible, uh, and, you, and uh, so you have cross-references like in the middle or on the bottom or on the side or something like that, if you get to a cross-reference, Look it up, especially if it's in one of the first five books of the Bible, because the, the, the prophets are always referring back, right? They're not coming up with new stuff. They might be announcing things uh, to the people that God is revealing to them, but they're always appealing back to what happened already. So if we're not familiar with it, we can, we can be confused. They might, they might say, well, um, you know, we read in uh, last night, we were reading in Michael 1, and talking about um, why Samaria was going to fall, and there was, uh, there was a statement about idols and, and things like that. And we're like, oh, well, of course, idols are, idols are wrong. Everybody knows idols are wrong. But the reason that idols were wrong is because God had said specifically in the covenant, you will have no other gods before me, and you will not make for yourself a graven image, because I am a jealous God. And so the people are not just being punished arbitrarily because they made idols, but they didn't know any better. They had specifically been commanded not to do this. And, and so Micah is saying, what are you doing? You know what God said. So we need to familiarize ourselves more with, with a book like Deuteronomy. It doesn't mean you need to do a, a uh, long-term study of it, although that would probably be very beneficial at some point but to, to read through it so that as you read the book of Micah, there's going to be things that, that occur there. You'll be like, wait, that sounds like, that sounds like this part of Deuteronomy. And you'll see how Micah is drawing on Deuteronomy to, to make his case against the people. Right? If Micah is a prosecutor, then he is using the law to make his case against the defendant. 
especially important are Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 4 and 28 to 30. Those chapters deal uh, especially with the, the curses that are uh, that are uh, that God warns about. It says if you're not faithful to this, this is what's going to happen. I'm telling you now, this is what's going to happen if you're not faithful to the covenant. Uh, and you see this stuff begin to play out in the book of Micah. Get that as we go. Okay. Micah 1.1. 1, 1. The word of the Lord which came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So this is basically the only background that we get uh, about the book of Micah. It tells us who wrote it, tells us when he wrote it, tells us why he wrote it. So who wrote it? Micah. Micah is a shortened version of a Hebrew name, Micaiah. Uh, you know our, our, uh, our, uh, one of our custodians, Kai Matthews. His first name is actually Andrew, but he won't tell you that. Um, He's not embarrassed about it, so I'm not breaking confidence, don't worry. Uh, his middle name is Micaiah, so we call him Kai. Micaiah is a, is a longer version of Micah. It means, who is like the Lord? Uh, and what's interesting is that at the end of the book of Micah, I think in, in uh, chapter 7, verse 18, Micah ends the book with this, uh, sort of this hymn of praise to God, and it begins with the statement, who is like the Lord? So it's very appropriate that, that the book begins and ends with this, with this word, Micah. So he's a real person. He's from the town of Moresheth. It's on the, on the border with um, where the, the Philistines were. I'll show you a map in a minute to try to point that out. And he prophesied in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, the kings of, of Judah. So um, Moresheth is, is in the south, uh, so it's in the kingdom of Judah. Um, and he's prophesying during the reigns of these, these kings. Uh, if you compare this to some of the other prophets, he's prophesying, he's ministering around the same time as Isaiah and Hosea. So Isaiah, who was in the south, Hosea was in the north. Um, so we can date this to uh, about 742 to 687 BC, because we kind of know when these kings were, were around. So he's ministering immediately before and after the exile of Israel. When I say Israel here, I mean the, the northern kingdom of Israel. I'll talk about that in a second. That happened in 722 BC. And it's about 100 or 150 years before the exile of Judah, the southern kingdom, in, in 586. And it gives us his purpose. He says he saw this, this word of the Lord came to him. So, so God is revealing something to him to speak to the people concerning Samaria. I think that should say Jerusalem. Which I think I made the same mistake in the, fir the first time and I never corrected it. So Samaria and Jerusalem. So, here's a map. Um, real quick 
big picture uh, Old Testament history. Right, so we're, we're studying Genesis right now, and uh, Jacob's family, if you've been with us, has gone to Egypt, right? They came out of uh, the land of Canaan, which this is Canaan, down to Egypt, which is down here, somewhere. Imagine the map. Uh, because of the famine, they're there for 400 years, they become slaves, uh, God rescues them, brings Moses, the plagues, across the Red Sea, uh, they wander in the wilderness for, for 40 years, and then they, they come in, they come up up the coast here, or up the coast, up this side of the, uh, the Dead Sea, this would be the coast, and uh, cross the, the Jordan, take Jericho, they take the land, and then uh, there's a period of time where there are the judges, things uh, go, go really bad during that time, the people are not faithful. To God, they're always worshiping these false gods. This is the, the thing that keeps coming up over and over and over again is that they worship the gods of the people that are around them. And they're led away from the God of Israel. Uh, eventually, uh, there's a judge named Samuel who's a pretty good dude. And the people say, Samuel, we like you and everything, but we want a king. Samuel says, that's not a great idea. You, God is your king. You shouldn't do that. They said, no, but we really need a king. It's like, okay. This is how it's going to go. So they get a king. Saul didn't go so well for him. And then David, right? David works out pretty well. Here, I'll show you. Right? If Samuel, Saul, things go bad, right? The godliness of the, of the people declines. And then David, things go better. The kingdom is established. And then David's son, Solomon, things go well. For a while, with Solomon, he builds the temple. This is the height of Israel's power. One big uh, country there where, where, uh, in, uh, in Canaan, a lot of power. And then Solomon dies, and there's a civil war, and the country splits in two. And then there's a northern kingdom that keeps the name Israel, and a southern kingdom, which then is called Judah, because it's basically just the tribe of Now, Israel from the get-go is a disaster, right? Immediately after the, the country splits, they set up at Bethel here in the south and at Dan in the north these golden calves and begin worshiping them, say, this is the God that saved you from Egypt. So right away they start worshiping images uh, and throughout uh, the history of the northern kingdom, they are never faithful to God. The south is a little bit better. They have periods of, of what we might call revival, uh, people returning to the Lord, kings that, that do a pretty good job. But overall, they're also in a, de in a decline. And so after Solomon, the kingdom splits. You have Israel in the north. That goes really bad until they get exiled in 722. And then Judah in the south, not going so well. There's some little periods. And then two kings, Hezekiah and Josiah, this big spike. Things go better for the country. They, they destroy the idols. They restore worship at the temple. They're following the law. But, but ultimately, it's not enough. And then they go into exile in 586 BC. So all of that to say, this is where we are in the book of Micah. 
we're right about the start of Hezekiah's reign, um, so, but in, in here. So Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah are right in there. So with Jotham and Ahaz, we're in, we're in a spot where we're still in decline, especially with Ahaz, he was no good. And then with Hezekiah, things start to go a little bit better. But it's also right at the time when Israel, the, the northern kingdom of Israel, is about to be conquered as judgment from God for their unfaithfulness. Now, that's important to keep in mind because even just in the first chapter, you see him talking about, about this judgment that is coming to Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. Samaria, and then Jerusalem, which is the capital of the southern kingdom. He's talking about this judgment that's coming on them for their, for their unfaithfulness. Uh, this is just to show you kind of when these kings uh, reigned. So that's big picture where we're at. The, the, the kingdoms uh, are particularly at the time when, when Micah is beginning to prophesy are, are just wracked with this idolatry. People are worshiping false gods or they're worshiping, they think they're worshiping the God of Israel, but they're doing it in ways that the God of Israel said, this is not how you worship me, right? Which we say, well, is that really so bad? They're still worshiping the God of Israel. But the answer is no, God gets to determine how he's worshiped. That's the deal. He gets to decide. We don't get to decide. This is not a choose your own adventure novel. He decides how he gets honored. The people said, no, we don't really like that. We're going to do it our way instead. That's a bad choice. And so Micah appears on the scene at the same time as a prophet like Isaiah or Hosea announcing, listen, because of your unfaithfulness to God, because you are willingly worshiping him uh, wrongly or willingly rejecting him outright and worshiping false gods, the judgment that he warned you would come if you did this is coming. So the book of Micah, uh, we're going we're gonna to break it into basically three big parts. Call them oracles. The word oracle just means prophetic speech. Um, and so each one begins with the word hear. So hear, O peoples, hear now, O heads of Jacob, hear now what the Lord is saying. This is sort of like a, a literary marker that, that tells us, okay, this is, this is a new section, because he's, he's starting it the same way as he started the other ones. And each one of these has, uh, has this kind of rhythm of judgment and salvation, judgment, salvation, judgment, salvation. So Michael, uh, chapters 1 and 2 is primarily... An announcement of judgment on the people for their sins. And then there's a little tiny glimmer of hope with salvation at the end. And then the second one, chapter 3, is, is judgment. And then kind of a big section about what God is going to do to redeem his people in chapters 4 and 5. And then again, chapter 6 and into 7 is judgment. And then the very end of chapter 7, again, announces salvation. See that, see that major key, minor key kind of bouncing back and forth. In Micah. So, um, next week we're going to get into 
chapter 1, uh, verses 2 to 16. So if you want to read that over the next week, this is all just background, but I, I, I hope you will find as we study that this is important as we come to understand the book. Um, and I think, I think we'll, we'll be referring back to some of these things as, as we go. So next week we'll do uh, chapter 1, verses 2 to 16. Uh, you have your discussion questions, and if you don't, they ended up somewhere. Janet has them if you don't have them. Uh, and uh, Janet or Cheryl or somebody will tell you where you are going for your discussion group. Good? All right.